Hi, welcome to the Tech Podcast by Huawei in London, a new series where each episode will be giving you the lowdown on all things tech, from incredible innovations to the opportunities they bring. This is the second of a two-part episode examining the economic reboot, where we explore the question, how can technology drive economic recovery? If you haven't already heard part one, you might want to pause here and check that out first. In this episode, we'll hear from a panel of industry leaders, including former BT chairman, Sir Mike Rake, who served as a non-executive director of Huawei until March this year, AI expert, Katie King, and Wireless Logic CEO, Oliver Tucker. In a frank exchange of ideas, we not only get to hear reflections on the thoughts shared in part one of this episode, but also their opinions on what needs to happen immediately if technology is to drive the economy out of the COVID slump. So to provide some context here, we know that history tells us that early adopters of new technologies often derive the greatest benefits from it. From companies to countries, those that embrace and invest in innovation secure a competitive edge over their rivals, a digital dividend, which can be hard to overhaul. Not only do they benefit from the technologies themselves, they also help develop industry standards and shape the future direction of travel. So, how does the UK's progress compare globally? Research from Omdia last year showed that South Korea, Switzerland and the US are leading the way in the adoption of 5G, with countries such as China, Germany and Japan catching up. The UK ranked seventh, but is falling behind. So what's at stake? And how can the UK best position itself to benefit from the opportunities like 5G, AI, and the Internet of Things? Okay, well, lots of opportunities, but it's not all good news, as you heard there. We are slipping. And what can we do to halt that slide? And as Karen Bradley was saying, there's a digital divide and there's some political time-wasting, some short-termism. As Sherry was saying there, there's a black hole of data that we're not using to its full uh, capability. We all know that data is gold these days. So we've got this gold sitting there unused. That does seem awfully wasteful. So no time to lose if we're going to make the most of the opportunity. So discuss all of that a little bit more with me now. I have a great panel of experts. First, Sir Mike Rake, former chairman of BT and until recently a non-exec director of Huawei UK. Very warm welcome to you. Also delighted to be joined by Katie King. I'm a big fan of Katie and her books. She's the author and CEO of AI in Business. Katie, welcome to you and good morning. And finally, Oliver Tucker, CEO and founder of Wireless Logic. And that, as I'm sure you're well aware, is one of the UK's leading Internet of Things companies. Oliver, good morning to you and welcome to all panelists. Um, I think we've heard a lot of interesting points of view from Sherry and from Karen, not all of it terribly optimistic. Um, so Mike, maybe if I can come to you first, just with reflections on what you've heard so far. Yeah, broadly, I think what Karen's outlined and Sherry has outlined are completely correct. Um, you know, we did not start until very late in sort of supporting a, a, a rollout, to, you know, fire to the premise to ensure that we have a ubiquitously clear high-speed connectivity for people in all the sectors we've talked about. And I think, you know, we, we paid a bit of a price for that. I mean, it, I remember very well in 2008, Ian Livingstone, then the chief executive of BT, coming to the board, 
with the proposals to start to invest in fibre to the cabinet. No one else was willing to do it. And he and later Lord Livingstone continued that sort of mission when he became a minister in the government to really move this on. So we had the sort of infrastructure in our topography that really could work. So that's important. And he's now going actually at a pace. There, there is real the momentum now in the rollout of fibre and without which we'd have been, as Karen said, in a bit of a mess during this pandemic. I think it directly links to 5G, where actually the government quite rightly, and I was there, put pressure on BT to really invest early in 5G, and, and we did. And I think we were actually making quite a lot of progress. And I, I think, unfortunately, political decisions have got in the way um, of you know, being able to choose suppliers who had the best kit at the best price, and actually with very clear security coverage for them. So that, unfortunately, I think will set back, as certain independent surveys have shown, the 5G rollout, but it is a political fact, and we just have to get on with it. Um, you know, the other providers are moving in, you know, to expand and improve their capabilities and research, and we need to do that, because 5G does make that difference to connectivity, to speed, to, you know, to dealing with the latency issue in those areas where we haven't yet got fibre, as I think Sherry was referring to. So all of that, I think, is critical just to move on, be fast, be effective, roll out the fibre, roll out the 5G, don't allow any further purely political decisions to get in the way of our economy. Casey, you're an AI expert. I mean, it was only a few years ago where AI was certainly not a mainstream subject of, of conversation. Now, of course, it affects all of us all the time. But are we slipping behind other countries? And, and, and what does it matter? Yes, it's huge impact, Daisy. Let's look at the facts because we've all got opinions. But the facts, if we look at the patents filed for AI, the UK is far, far behind. You know, we have China with 106,000 filed and the UK, or certainly Great Britain, with um, 535. So I think Europe and the UK are way, way behind and slipping. I mean, we certainly are putting ourselves forward as that barometer for ethical AI and doing some amazing work in that space. Um, but certainly, and it's frustrating because COVID has broken through those cultural barriers and you know we have accelerated that digitization and if only now we hadn't let things slip behind you know we could really be able to take advantage of it very very quickly we need that digitization we need that data to be able to take advantage of AI across our education and every aspect of our personal and business lives. Oliver, you're an Internet of Things expert and we've talked about the opportunities that IoT and AI present, but how do you think the tech sector can drive growth? Can it do it without the support or, or more support from the government? I think that, you know, the technology sector generally has coped very well in terms of the pandemic. Um, I think as we've heard earlier, the ability for organizations and, and people to adapt from working from home rather than uh, from their offices, I think, you know, has generally overall impressed most people. Having said that, I think, you know, the investment that we need in terms of uh, the digital infrastructure is clear. I'm, I'm speaking to you from my office because I live in rural Sussex and therefore I can't rely on my internet connection. Uh, cellular coverage isn't very good there. Uh, at the bottom of my driveway, we have fiber to the cabinet, but can I hell get it fiber to the premises? No, um, it, I, I just can't seem to get it for whatever reason. 
So, you know, I think specifically to wireless logic and to the Internet of Things uh, industry, I think, you know, what we do need um, is the continual investment uh, in making uh, the UK a technology leader, particularly in 5G uh, and associated technologies. You know, 5G has the ability to transform economies and societies across the world. You know, new capabilities, improve performance, enhance resilience of these networks. You know, we'll make this technology a compelling proposition for end customers, you know, businesses, and of course, end users. And, you know, 5G has already opened up a new set of use cases, um, you know, in many parts of the world already, from autonomous vehicles, as we heard previously, to smart cities, you know, mass drone deployments. Uh, and in the medium term, 5G enabled features such as network slicing, you know, has the potential to guarantee quality of service for user cases such as manufacturing plants and, you know, smart energy grids, as an example. So, you know, I think there are obvious user cases that will drive early adoption, but, you know, this will not happen at a mass scale until 5G coverage is more widespread. In my view, we need to give the UK technology sector the ability to innovate, you know, with a fully deployed 5G network. You know, as Sir Mike says, you know, if we lag too far behind other countries, it's likely that we won't see the next major technology success stories coming from the UK. They'll come from elsewhere. So, you know, we need to invest, um, you know, not only in terms of that infrastructure, but I think, again, as we've heard previously, in terms of advocating and supporting what I would call the STEM careers, so science, technology, environmental and maths, you know, Big job roles in the future will move increasingly towards careers such as cybersecurity, data science, software engineering and development. You know, and we need to create a critical mass of skills in the UK to exploit these opportunities. Well, actually, that was exactly the point I wanted to, um, to, to bring up next. And so, Mike, if I were able to wave a magic wand and 5G would be, you know, all the way from John O'Groats to the other end of the country, that, that's not job done, is it? Because even if no. we had the 5G, we need the skills. We need three things, really. We need to complete the rollout of fibre to the premise, which is costly in some areas. That has to be done. It is accelerating, not yet to Oliver, sadly. We do need to stop, um, you know, the decision we made on 5G suppliers, according to an independent sort, set back the rollout of 5G, removing Huawei from the network, has set back 5G by two years. We can't afford any more delay in 5G. We have to work with all of our partners, all of the suppliers to roll 5G. We need that. And you're absolutely 100% right. Without the skills, the, the education, uh, we're going to get nowhere. And I, I do think Sherry's chart was very interesting because a lot of work that was done at the Commission for Employment and Skills until it was dismounted in 2015 and latterly by Charlie Mayfield on productivity really made this point about the need to improve. I mean, the level of illiteracy i'm afraid you know these social we still have a large level of illiteracy in the adult population of even larger level of lack of numeracy and i think there's a lot that big companies can do to sherry's point to work down supply chains to raise awareness on the digital agenda and to give people the practical experience the confidence they need to work with the technology that needs to work off you know the fiber networks off the 5g networks and Katie, just on the subject of skills and retraining, and particularly going back to Sherry's point, which again, like Sir Mike, I thought was very interesting. She wasn't just talking about 
school education and you know producing kids who are tech literate she was talking about retraining adults which is a much harder thing to do actually um, than train a spongy brain of a child but so there's that issue but there's also the issue which so many people are worried about of ai and tech replacing jobs yeah, really good point. Multifaceted there. So I am writing my second book on AI at the moment. So I'm entrenched in all of the data on this and interviewing some of the world's best brains on it. And if you look at the World Economic Forum, actually, people should be encouraged because there's a net gain. We've got 97 million jobs which are decreasing in demand. Um, sorry, growing in demand. The 97 is the growing and the 85 million is decreasing. So we've got that net gain of 12 million. So, But the problem is levelling it up across the UK for prosperity, up and down the country, across different ethnicities, across different genders as well. And I think that starts in schools, that is in further and higher education, huge demand for it in executive education and amongst the parents as well. So, and I've been talking to Dame Wendy Hall about this, who's the AI skills champion. We, we need that. Um, you know, one of the top 10 priorities for the government is this leveling up of the prosperity. And so we need the apprenticeships that were talked about earlier, the digital boot camps, the grants, the innovation funds. It's huge, but it can be done. You know, other countries have managed to do it. Uh, we, we, we have to do it. It's absolutely essential. And Katie, that there mentioned other countries. And of course, one of the factors that the UK does incredibly badly on international comparisons is productivity. And then when you look closer at the data, it's actually the regional inequalities between areas of the country that the really shocking disparities come out. The Southeast having nearly all the productivity and other areas really lagging behind. And to come back to um, you, Sir Mike, is, is the levelling up, the equaling of regions the important thing, or is it bringing everybody up? that's the important thing. And why is our productivity so low? Perhaps do we measure it incorrectly? Are we yeah. using old fashioned ways of measuring? It, it's an incredibly complex area. What, however, successive reviews, whichever way you look at it, our productivity has not been what it should be in a number of sectors. Not all sectors, in some sectors, and advanced manufacturing were actually very good. You know, in some areas of the country, we're a lot better than others, but there's a huge amount of work to be done here on basic education, on skills, on really high quality apprenticeships that we absolutely need. But the levelling up, it, we mustn't level down. You know, this, it shouldn't be a reallocation. We have failed, and we saw this in BT everywhere, in some of the areas we work right across the country. The level of deprivation, places in the South Wales with families working in our call centre who've been unemployed for three generations, really disgraceful, you know, abandonment of many parts of our country, which is no wonder we've had political reactions such as we've seen. So the need to really invest in those capabilities, and one of the, you know, what Ian Livingstone was saying for years is one of the most important investments we could make was actually, you know, without getting into the politics of railways, for the money that you spend in really, really getting quickly to rolling out fibre to the premise and really getting 5G expanded and really creating that capability. But we, we absolutely should have a real conscience, as I think we do now, about the way you know, tracks of the country have just been left behind, educationally, inspirationally, you know, you know, the high levels of, of, of addiction to antidepressant drugs. I mean, really things we can't allow to continue.
the trade-offs if you've got for example companies using ai where those ais aren't paying any tax there's the potential for trade-offs where that should then be some kind of taxation that then could fund education in that community so there are ways of doing it and oliver i'd like to come to you as as a business leader and, and obviously a lot of these issues are directed at the government and the education policies and, and welfare policies but also if we're going to see any equaling or leveling up between regions it's going to take businesses to make money in those businesses and create jobs in those businesses and when we're talking about high-tech businesses you can see why they all congregate around the same corridors what will it take do you think to force some of those companies to spread their wings and spread some of their wealth around the country well i think ironically in some respects i think covid probably will help in terms of doing that um you know whereas before people congregated you know the m4 corridor in terms of technology or what have you whereas now i think you know the the, what we will see in terms of the general um, business environment is the flexibility of people coming into the office and working from home. You know, I do believe that, you know, working habits will change. People won't want to commute as they have done previously, but also they need, as Karen said right at the top of the hour, you know, we, we need the sort of, everyone's fed up with Zoom calls, so they need the collaboration and stuff like that. So. You know, I do think that in many respects, sort of COVID will help in terms of spread out the skill sets, you know, around um, around the country and level up in terms of sort of different regions. But I think, you know, the acceleration, if you like, of this digital technology is, is really going to underline the requirement for a change in many respects to the skills makeup of the UK's workforce. And I think that's probably as important. Um, you know, many believe that digital technology were humans in many cases. And, and this might be true in some, but fundamentally, I believe that the net effect will be positive. Um, but with the type and nature of jobs changing. I've talked about you know, STEM skills previously, and I think they are going to grow in importance. And we need industry and government focus you know, on developing and nurturing the acquired skills, knowledge, and uh, experience. I mean, for instance, at Wireless Logic, we believe in investing in the next generation, the next generation of leaders. Um, you know, we, we focus hugely in terms of career development. You know, we run graduate training schemes, we run apprentice programs, you know, and we've set those up to identify and develop the talents of tomorrow. And just on that issue, so Mike, if I can come back to you, you were touching on lots of things that people wouldn't traditionally think were the remit of technology companies or politicians thinking about these areas, but we're very much well-being. And, and we touched on this earlier about how we judge GDP and how we judge productivity and output. And do you think it is time that we started taking into account areas of, of, of well-being, of, of lifestyle, um, of health in GDP rather than just money in, money out? A hundred percent. And, and I think there are two reasons for this. I mean, morally, it is the right thing to do. And I think many companies have seen and many of us have seen the pressures that have been brought on people's lives through this lockdown, the stress, the, the unavailability of some medical treatment, all the, the issues that are, that are arising and we're seeing them very clearly arise. So people I've seen are really beginning to focus on mental health. The other thing that every survey you do, every company you review, a happy workforce that's motivated you know, is a, is a much more productive workforce. You see much lower levels of sickness, you see much higher levels of productivity, you see much higher levels of retention of the skills that you need. 
So in other words, it's a business win and it's a moral win. And I think most, most companies have got this, you know, the point of having purpose. Unless you have purpose, you've got to have some purpose in your company. And your people, and particularly younger people, want to join companies that clearly not only talk about purpose, but deliver on purpose. And I think it, it was always it was always obvious and it's now critical. And Katie, talk to me about the um, crossover between technology, AI, well-being, job satisfaction, because there is crossover there. But I'm unclear as to whether too much technology is, is, is something to be avoided and how the pandemic is going to affect all of this, in your opinion. Again, it's multifaceted. It's first of all, it's educating people that this is not about big, shiny robot come and taking all of our jobs. If we allow AI uh, fully into our businesses, into our world, then as we've seen with the acceleration of, of medical supplies and vaccines, it has the power to accelerate that drug discovery and to do incredible things for our lives. It's not coming, taking all of our jobs. It is doing what I call in my books the, the three Ds, the dirty, dull and dangerous. So if we allow AI tools to, in our marketing, in our HR, in our homes to do some of the mundane, boring jobs that have been you know if we're fed up we come back from a day or a week of work and we've got a house to clean in time when the costs come down if we have these tools doing the things that for example software as, as a service tools have done for the past decade like automating our VAT for our banking if we allow all of that to happen we should be able to to do less boring activities and try and get some balance and so on. So I think it's that. And I think um, we should all prosper. And again, there's a bit of a utopia there, but with the right balance of regulation and innovation, with the safeguards in place for consent and ethics um, and all of those important issues with the taxation I touched on for leveling up a bit, I think there's a could be, could be a very, very rosy picture. The other issue that you see a lot of is the stress of the technology itself, particularly to older people who've not been so experienced in this, you know. So there are two stresses. One is Oliver's stress, where been, he's simply not getting the speed he needs because we don't have the infrastructure. Then there's the stress of actually operating these systems. The other issue I think is critical is simplification and practical help. Simplification of the user end of applications. We're seeing more and more simplification, which is gonna help. And the other thing, many companies, BT included, have these big volunteering programs. And certainly my father, who sadly died recently when he at 98 years old, but I mean, he had somebody come and explain to him, I can't remember how old he was, 85, 90, how simply to use email and a few other things. And just a young person came along on the program and it made a big difference. You know, so there's a lot that you can do in society to make it less challenging. And a lot of people are, are kind of almost nervous, frightened of technology or frustrated by it. And yet it should, as we've seen in good banking systems, make life less stressful for us, give us more time to do other things that give us more pleasure than being frustrated about our network dropping or not being able to make the, the application work. And, and Oliver, actually picking up on uh, Samite's point there about nervousness about tech, but also, of course, we all know there's a big distrust of tech. And I wonder what we can do about that of the way our data is being used, all those issues that, uh, that are at the back of people's minds how significant do you see those issues and what can be done about them? Oh, I think, you know, it's it's huge issues at the moment. I mean, I think we talk about electronic banking. I mean, I think, you know, the older generation totally mistrust it because 
um, one, they're not used to doing it that way, and two, to send information or access information over the internet, um, I think they see it as fraught with a huge amount of security risk. And we see that within I, the IoT industry uh, specifically. You know, that in some respects is what has held back uh, the IoT industry because you've heard of all these kind of horror stories about, you know, assets out in the field, you know, whether they're baby monitors or security cameras being hacked, etc. And that's what really concerns people. So I think that, you know, when you look about the transmission of data, and don't forget a lot of the data within the IoT industry is not nice to have information. So, you know, information that you use on your Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, that's nice to have. A lot of it is mission critical data because you're monitoring, you know, diabetes, for an example, uh, or you're, you know, sending information about where a delivery driver is going for a pickup or delivery or what the temperature of the trailer is at the back or all that. That's mission critical data for a business. And therefore, you know, having the appropriate infrastructure the uh, service level agreements, uh, the security of that data, because some of it might be uh, not only mission critical, but might be sensitive information. I think, you know, that is, that is, you know, a huge concern, not only, as I say, just in the IoT industry, but I think generally in the sort of the, the wider applications out there in the marketplace. Um, and I think, you know, we as a organization or as an industry have to continually um, you know, educate um, in terms of people about how secure uh, and, and the, the uh, stuff that we're putting in place that enables that information to go from A to B securely over the internet, um, you know, in, at the appropriate time, etc. So, I mean, I think a lot of that is to do with businesses, not necessarily so much to do with government. It's us being able to provide um, you know, those secure, reliable solutions that, um, you know, operations people, if you like, uh, require um, out in the field. So I've got just a few seconds and I'm going to um, have uh, another small chat with Karen Bradley in a minute. But before I do that, I would love from the three of you. Karen is obviously not here as a representative of the government, but she has held uh, senior uh, office, Secretary of State, um, responsible for this area. So if there was one or two things that you want to see done by the government, what would it be? And I'm going to start with Mike, then Katie, then Oliver to finish. Mike. I think there has to be and there is a focus on supporting the industry. The industry's got it and moving on rolling out fibre. I think the government has to not allow any further non-evidence-based sort of approach to restriction of supply would be very dangerous for the rollout of 5G at speed. Any further restrictions would be. So a one to do continue, one not to do, stop getting politics in the way of rolling out this incredibly important technology. Okay, that was very concise. Katie? I agree, but I would add it's funding. So for me, it would be uh, across the UK, particularly in the regions where, for example, across universities, there's more funding available, innovation grants to help the local smaller business community through innovation grants where they, for example, for AI can access somebody with a PhD and develop something for their smaller business that enables them to take advantage of that technology. For me, it is about the money and, as well as education. And finally, Oliver. Um, I mean, I think it's very much in terms of we now need to capitalize 
uh, on this digital acceleration that we've seen in particular over the last sort of 12, 14 months, you know, by supporting those businesses um, so, you know, that they continue to thrive. And I think, as I say, you know, it's investing uh, in the infrastructure to make sure that we don't get left behind and that, you know, the future success stories come out of the UK rather than elsewhere. And I think finally it's investing in terms of the new skill sets that are going to be required, if you like, for the new economy. Well, plenty to do in the intray. So I will uh, put those points to Karen in just a second. But for now, I just want to say a very, very big thank you uh, to Samai, to Oliver and to Katie for joining us today. I'm um, really opening up an awful lot of avenues uh, for discussion and hopefully uh, movement and decision making and success. So thank you so much to all three of you uh, for that. And now I'm delighted to welcome back uh, Karen Bradley. Uh, as we said at the beginning, you know, Karen uh, sat in government, Secretary of State responsible for this area, is now uh, chairing the Procedure Committee. Karen, thank you so much um, for coming back. I'd just love to get your views, having listened to Sherry and those really strong arguments she was making for the government releasing the data so we can learn the lessons from it. I wonder what your view is on that. And then specifically your views on um, what our panel was talking about, the regional funding, uh, help for SMEs and really capitalising on the acceleration that we've seen during the pandemic. Yeah, well, it's been a fascinating uh, discussion and uh, I think we've heard from real experts in the field uh, giving some really important points about how we can capitalise, as Oliver said, on, on what we've learned over the last 12 months. Um, in terms of the release of data, I, I you know, evidence-based uh, policy is always better than non-evidence-based policy. Uh, it clearly is much, much preferable if we know that something works when we roll it out and we invest the money in it, because let's face it, government is investing your money as taxpayers and we need to make sure we're investing it uh, the government's investing it correctly. There's always going to be um, people concerned, and, the, and the, the point was raised by a number of contributors about the concern people might have about the use of their data. And I think there's some real work needs to be done on that. But I I'm, uh, personally think that if we can get data and we can get information there, that is going to help people with their trust of these matters and know that it's evidence-based. And then I, I suppose, you know, the real takeaway for me is around the skills and around how we make sure that across the whole country we have the skills in place and we we have uh, not just new graduates and access to new graduates but also adult education i think we need more flexibility in our further education uh, providers to make sure that uh, adult education can be provided as and when needed so that we can upskill so that people are not worried that AI is going to take their job away. Actually, what AI is going to give them is the ability to do a more interesting, exciting and more profitable job. And just very briefly, Karen, on that issue of releasing the data, it presents a wider issue, doesn't it, about governments and politicians being willing to learn from mistakes, trying things, you know, try things willy-nilly and then work out which ones work and which ones don't. But I think sometimes politicians are not willing to say, well, we tried that and it didn't work. Well, look, the pandemic has been the classic example of that. We have seen politicians faced with uh, unprecedented situation. I know that's the word of the year, unprecedented, but it genuinely is unprecedented. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody knew how this virus 
would work and how it would affect us. And therefore, politicians have had to try things and some things haven't worked. And I'm sure when we look back, we will say that that wasn't the best decision, even if it was the best decision taken at the time on the evidence available. Um, but where things have worked, let's build on it. So I think we've seen a real life experiment uh, of, of how things can go wrong and how politicians can learn from it. And I hope that that will be a lesson we'll all learn for the future and not be scared about saying as politicians that actually that wasn't the best way of doing things. This is a better way. Yeah, in fact, that's that's such a good note to end on. Uh, taking success or victory from the jaws of defeat and being able to stand up and say, we tried it, we gave it a go and it didn't work, perhaps is one of uh, the, the benefits of all the horrors of the last year and ability um, to analyse mistakes and learn from them. Karen Bradley, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. It, as you said, it really was really really well informed and interesting debate lots of food for thought uh, just another big heartfelt thank you from me for joining us today and a big thank you to the panelists thank you so much have a great day and goodbye so that brings us to the end of part two of the economic reboot and the first tech podcast from upskilling across all ages and open discussions about legislations and application to thinking bigger and at speed. We hope you found the conversation thought-provoking and insightful. If it's a do of tech, we'll be covering it, so don't forget to subscribe. We have lots more to come in future episodes. And if you can't wait until then, why not follow us on Twitter at Huawei UK? But until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.